Exodus chapter 13. Exodus chapter 13. We're going to start at verse 17. Um, this is our fifth or sixth talk in the mini-series through this book that we've called Down and Out that uh, walks through the portion of Exodus where God comes down into Egypt and then brings the people out of Egypt. So we're going to finish off that mini-portion today. Tim's going to preach next week. And then the week after that, we are going to continue on through Exodus and finish at the end of July. Exodus chapter 13, verse 17, once you're there, let's stand together. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones with With you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and the that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahiroth between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, and they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we've done that we've let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot, took his army with him, and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers um, over all of them. Moses is, he's using language that em- with an emphasis to show us that Pharaoh got the whole army of Egypt and started chasing these people. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them, encamped at the sea by Pi-Hahiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. When, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For we have, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And that is a lie. Um, they didn't say that. Uh, what's going on right now is because they have faced a problem, the thing that they prayed for in Exodus chapter 1 and 2 and 3, uh, they're now starting to misremember. They're starting to reinterpret. They, they prayed so desperately for this thing, and now they've come up against a roadblock, and they're saying, we didn't want to be here anyways. Um, it's kind of funny because we're like that. 
That's how we are. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work out for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. That's not comfort. That's correction. He's saying the Lord's going to fight for you. Shut up. Stop complaining. (laughs) The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the heart of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was a cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. God had separated the Egyptians from the Israelites. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left hand. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us free from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon the chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, and all of the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one remained. The entire army of Egypt, not one remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you're a deliverer. Thank you that you're a God who fights for us. Thank you that you're a God who fulfills your purposes. Increase our faith in you today. Open up our eyes to who you are. Speak to us. Reveal yourself to us. Give us a conviction of who you are and what you want to do. And we might believe in you more. Amen. The theme or the title, the topic that I want to talk about today is the setup. I want to talk about the setup. I want to walk with these people Uh, through this wilderness encounter. And as we're walking, I want to talk about the setup. So Moses, as we go on this journey, he draws our our attention continually to what I would say, what my personal belief is that it's one of the 
most fundamental realities in the life of the people of God. Not only the people of God as we walk through the wilderness, but the people of God as they settled down in Canaan and as they settled down in Jerusalem and as they spread throughout the world as the church. And even on to today, Moses constantly draws our attention to the fundamental reality of being the people of God. He he first points, uh, draws our attention to this reality when in Exodus chapter 3 he says, hey, remember God showed up to me on the mountain and he, he showed up in the form of a fire in a bush. Then Moses, he says, hey, look at it again when he points at the cloud by day and the fire by night, God showing up leading us. And he points us to it again later in Exodus 19 when he shows us God having come down on Mount Sinai in the form of a storm cloud to define the relationship with the people. And he finally climaxes this reality in Exodus chapter 40 when he says, after the people built the tabernacle, the glory of the Lord filled the place. The fundamental reality that Moses is using to tie together the whole book of Exodus and that I think makes sense of our whole life is this, that God is present with his people. God is present with his people. I was in Bible college. I had a professor who really emphasized being present. Uh, And he wanted us to know the importance of being present so much so that he graded us on attendance. Uh, Every absent was a doc in our grade. So I remember one time sitting in class and seeing this other student walk up to this professor uh, before class started. And she said, hey, I think you um, I think you made a mistake. I checked online and it said I was absent yesterday, but I came to class and he said, yeah, you you're sitting in your seat, but you're on your phone the whole time. I counted you absent because you weren't engaged. That's when I made a mental note that to be in this man's class, being present means being engaged. Listen to me. When I say God is present among his people, I mean God is here and he's engaged. He's here and he's engaged. He's here and he's aware. He knows. He sees. He understands. He's here and he's active. He's guiding. He's leading. He's speaking. He's here and he's available. He's listening. He's responding. He's giving when we ask. God is present with his people. God's presence, Christian, God's presence, church, this is what makes us who we are. This is what defines and distinguishes us. I'm going to preach this in about three weeks and it's going to be real fun, but I'll take a little bit of time to do it today. This is what makes us us. You are a Christian because God, by way of the Holy Spirit, has made his home in you. Only reason. We are the church because God, by way of the Holy Spirit, dwells among us. Only reason. God being here is what makes us us. God being here is what makes us the way that we are. Uh, You know, I love Augustine. I quote him a lot. He I'm paraphrasing him when he said. The Christian is always good because because God is always present and he's always working. But regardless of what situation we find ourselves in, we're good because God's there working. Why are you joyful and, and life's going like, uh, life feels like hell because God's there? Why are you content and money's getting low because God's there? Why do you have peace and all chaos is breaking out around you because God's there? Why are you the way that you are? Why are you joyful? Why are you happy? Why are you holy? Why are you following Jesus? Because God's there. God being here is what makes us the way that we are. And not only that, God being here is why we do what we do. I could have been in Tulsa this weekend with my family, celebrating my birthday. 
but I came here on Sunday morning at 6.30 in the morning because God's here. We could have been doing a whole lot of other things this morning. Father's Day at 11.15 in the morning. But why do we come? Because we believe God's here. Why do we go and serve in the community at places like Water Gardens? Because we believe God's there. Why do we gather in small groups? Because we believe God's there. We do what we do because we believe God is there doing it with us. God's presence is what defines us. It's what distinguishes us. Oh, if you're, you're not a Christian, if you don't do this Jesus thing, if you haven't believed in him, I'll, I'll, I'll give you God's plan for you. God's plan is to be with you. The whole of scripture is a narrative. It tells the story of God and it starts in Genesis. In the beginning, God created everything and he lived in a garden with people. And throughout the rest of scripture, it's getting to a point where it will climax where at the end, God will be in the new heavens and the new earth with his people. His plan is to be with you. So Moses, he's pointing out God's presence. He's saying God's here among us. Look at him. Look, look, Look at him here with us. But look closer at what God's doing while he's here. Moses says he's he led the people here. He's leading his people that way. He's he's leading the people this way. God is here and he's leading his people. This is who God is. He leads his people. Come here, American. Come here, you people who've been brought up in 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 a society that prioritizes personal choice and autonomy. Come here. We, we've been brought up in a nation where this nation was built on a foundation of autonomy and personal choice. Our political system is built on the freedom to choose who you want to lead you. The American dream that we sell is the freedom to choose the path of success that you want and how you want to go about it. We, we expand it geographically because people felt they had the freedom to choose where they wanted to live and to build. This corporate foundation of personal choice is also the foundation that we're being given as the foundation of our life. They're saying you choose who you want to be. You choose where you want to go. You choose what you want to do. You choose how you want to go about in a situation. Listen to me. Total autonomy is absolutely antithetical to life with God. I know we like autonomy. I know we like freedom. I know we like to do what we want to do, but listen to me. That only gets you so far in walking with God. Oh, yeah. God gave you agency. He gave you the ability to make a personal choice, but he didn't give you the ability to make a personal choice so you can do what you wanted to do. God gave you the ability to make a personal choice so that you can choose to do what he wants you to do. He gave you the ability to choose to serve him, the ability to choose to worship him, the ability to choose to follow him. God wants to lead you. You know what it was like when someone was teaching you how to drive, or maybe some of you are like this. You got friends or family members or a spouse who's a, who's a, who's a passenger seat driver. Whole time you're in the driver's seat, you've got your hands on the wheel. They're saying, turn left, brake, slow down, stop, go this way. They might not have their hands on the wheels, but you're definitely taking your cues from them. That's how God wants to lead you. Jesus might never take the wheel, but he'll give you cues. He's constantly directing you. He's constantly guiding you. He's constantly leading you. In scripture, there to, uh, in all of scripture, he's given us cues on how to go about situations, on how to conduct ourselves in all situations. And there are times where he'll give us specific direction. He's constantly directing you. 
saying, I want to guide you. I want to lead you. Have you ever been in a store? Um, I saw this dad once walking his kid through Walmart or something. A uh, kid was walking behind him. And then the kid started to act a fool. He was like, Daddy, I'm tired. Daddy, carry me. Daddy, my leg's broken. Daddy, I'm sick. Then the kid falls out on the floor, got slain in the spirit somehow from complaining and just there crying. Finally, the dad just says, fine. And dad walked on off. Just left the kid right there. Look at what Moses said about God. Listen to what Moses said God did. He said God did not depart from them. Later on in Deuteronomy, God declares, I will never leave you. Listen to me. God leads, but he never leaves you. Even when you're acting foolish. God, God, when will you leave me? Never. Even when I misinterpret your leadership? Never. Even when I'm stubborn? Never. Even when I go my own way? Never. Even when I fight back? Never. God says, I will never, never, never leave you. God leads, but he never leaves you. So, so God's leading us through. He's leading us through the wilderness. He's, he's leading us. He's not leaving us. He's leading us. He's not leaving us. And then like always following God, we come into a conflict. It says the people are walking and they look behind them and it's the whole army of Egypt coming from behind them. And they look in front of them, and it's a whole ocean in front of them. God, we've tried as hard as we can. We felt as if we've been following you faithfully. We've kept our eyes on you. We've been obedient. Step by step, we've been with you. You told us we'd be in a land where we'd be free with you, but we look behind us, and there's slavery coming at us. We look in front of us, and there's drowning to death in front of us. Why is the thing that we see, why does it seem to be in opposition to what you said? You ever felt like, You follow God right into a spot. And the thing that you see seems to be in opposition to where he said you'd be. We just came out the back end of a pandemic. I know some of you have thought it. God, this don't look like what you said it'd be. Trying to fight sin trying to fight some sort of addiction. God, you said I'd be free, but I'm seeing temptation knock on the door every day. God, I got this word that you said I'd be doing this, this work. I'd be, I'd be participating in your mission in this new way, but I see no opportunity and no opening. What I see ain't what you said. What do you do? Christ Church, I'm excited about our future, and I think God said good things about us, but let me tell you what's going to happen. If not once, twice, three times, four times, continually, we'll get to a point to where we'll look around us, and what we see is in opposition to what we believe God has said about us. What are we going to do as a church? And I'm not talking about times where we misinterpret. I'm talking about times where we know that we know that we know we heard God. Like some of those times where it's like, no, scripture says this is going to happen. But what I'm seeing is not that. 
Or I've gotten this word and it aligns with scripture. I've prayed with people about it. People who I trust have confirmed it. I know that I know that I heard you, God, but what I'm seeing ain't it. What do you do? Maybe you're not like me, but I'll tell myself. There are times where I get in this situation and I think, God, I know you. I know I've been following you out here. And I know I followed you to this spot. And this ain't what you told me before we started. Did you set me up? You ever felt set up by God? You ever felt like God got you all excited and walked you into purgatory? He got you all jazzed about what he's going to do in your life and then walked you right into the middle of a wilderness? You ever felt set up? What do you do when you feel set up by God? I'll help you because I love you. Um, First thing to do when you feel set up by God is you need to know it is a setup. It's exactly what it is. Come close. Let's run back through our story. The beginning of Exodus 14. You remember what God told Moses before any of this happened? He said, Moses, I want you to tell the people to turn around and camp out by the ocean. I'm going to change Pharaoh's mind. I'm going to walk Pharaoh to that ocean. I'm going to put you between an army and an ocean. And God says, why? Because I'm going to get glory over all of it. God God led them into a situation that seemed almost impossible. So when he got them on the other side, they would know that they knew it was God and God alone that got them through. This is a revelation of how God leads. God leads towards his glory. God leads you into a situation where he gets glory. God leads for his glory. God doesn't lead for your comfort. He leads for his glory. God doesn't lead according to your preferences. He leads for his glory. God doesn't lead according to your reason. He leads for his glory. God leads for his glory and his glory alone. But it's good for you. This is why setting up hardship as a measure for God's leadership is a horrible thing to do. I had someone tell me a few months ago, I was talking to him and they were like, Jaron, I think you're discounting God's leadership because you feel as if you're in a hardship. Maybe you're like this where you think, I know God's leading me here if it's the path of least resistance, if there's no opposition, if it's easy and smooth and everything falls perfectly in place. I know God's leading me here. But if there's opposition, if there's complications, if there's roadblocks, if there's a single no, then clearly God's not leading me there. Listen to me. Of course he's going to lead you into hardship. Have you seen his track record? He told Moses, leave your home or not Moses. He told Abraham, leave Go someplace, I'll show you at some time, and you and your 75-year-old infertile wife are going to birth a nation. And he waited like 15 years before he showed back up. He told Joseph, you're going to lead your family. Five years later, where was Joseph? Not leading his family in slavery. At the end of the story, Joseph said, God put me there. The eternal word of God, the Logos, became flesh and followed the Father to a cross. The Apostle Paul followed God into countless beatings and shipwrecks. 
Ten of the apostles found themselves executed at the hands of the state. One of them found himself in exile and the church for the past 2000 years has found herself in persecution following God. Of course, he's going to lead you into hardship. But he does it for his glory. This is a perfect situation because. Army here, army here. Ocean here. There's no way they're defeating the army. There's no way they're walking across that waters. That's a situation where once they got out of it, they could only give credit to God. They couldn't say it was us. No, it was God. It wasn't luck. It was God. I'll show my cards. Um, 2016 uh, uh, is when it became, it seemed to become pretty darn clear that God had, um, was pushing me to lead and preach. I was like, cool, let's do it. Simultaneously, um, I was reading scripture and praying, and it became extremely clear um, what God wanted his church to look like. Uh, Revelation 7, uh, Ephesians chapter 2 and 3, this church of old and young and anything in between and rich and poor and everything in between and all kinds of ethnicities and the broken people who show their messiness and broken people who look pretty and hide it, all kinds of people in the church. So it's like, oh, that's what you want, God. So I put the two together. Okay, I, God, you want me to lead? You want me to preach? This is the kind of church. This is the church you want me to build. So I was like, where are we going? Where are we going to go to do this? A few weeks later, Church of 8,000 in Los Angeles called, and I was like, God, is this it? Mm-mm. Nope. A few months later, Church of 20,000 in Louisville called, God, is this it? Mm-mm. Nope. God, where are we going? You know where God walked me? To stay in Joplin. He walked me down the street to a new apartment. I know the demographics of this city. I know the church growth principles that say the quickest way to grow a church is to choose one kind of person and target that one kind of person only. I know the political thought of the place in which we lived where the word diversity streaks of the political enemy. I know all of that stuff. It was really easy to think, God, this is a set up. That's rather cruel of you. I'm reading this passage, Moses made it clear, yeah, it's a set up. To set up for him to get glory. Because in five years, ten years, when we, Christ Church, look like Revelation 7, look like this picture God's painted, we will get to a point where we know it wasn't nobody's strategy, it was only God. It wasn't nobody's uh, efforts, it was only God. It wasn't luck, it was only God. It wasn't coincidence, it was only God. It was only God. God will lead you into a situation and through a situation to where when you get through, you can't give credit to luck. You can't give credit to you. You can't give credit to someone's the goodness of someone else's heart. You can only give credit to God. He only leads for his glory. Some of you felt as if God is leading you into freedom from certain ways of thinking. And it's getting real easy to keep thinking that way. He's got you there so he can get glory over it. Some of you feel like God's led you into freedom from certain sin. And temptation is knocking at your door every day. He's got you there to show you that it wasn't by your willpower, but it was by him. It's for his glory. So here we find ourselves in the setup. God said something. 
He's led us. We see ourselves in a place that's in direct opposition. And he says, I'm going to get glory out of this. This is the setup, not setting you up, setting himself up. So here's the question I want to ask in the last few minutes. What do we do when we feel like we're in the middle of a setup? What do we do when we feel like we're in the middle of a setup? Here's the first thing. Write this down. Stand firm. The people are complaining and Moses looks at him and he says, don't fear. Stand firm. That word stand firm, stand firm, it communicates the idea of commitment. It communicates the idea of resisting pressure. He says, stand firm. This week, um, I was sitting on the couch. My lovely wife brought a tomato sauce can to me. Uh, she's like, can you open this? I was like, huh. You need your hunk of a man today, don't you? <laughs> so I'm like, here, give it to me. I don't even, I don't even look at the thing. I'm still watching TV and I'm just twisting. That thing stayed put. So I was like, huh. Okay. So then I, I exert a little bit more effort. I actually look down at the tomato thing. I'm like, and that thing stayed put. And so then I'm like, okay, okay, okay. I'm going to have to use a little bit more pressure so I lean forward. I'm not reclining anymore. I just lean forward and I'm like, huh. So then, I mean, because my ego's hurt, I start making all kinds of excuses. Darn it, Chelsea. You knew I just got off a plane from Ohio. I'm tired. Why would you bring that thing to me? It's humid in this house. Why would you bring me a wet can? Why, why would you do this? You, you messed it up. Why would you do this? So then I stand up thinking I'm going to get it. And I, I get a shirt and I cover it and I'm in the thing state, but. And we take it to the kitchen, run it out of hot water, stayed put, bang the thing on the island, stayed put. Christchurch, three days later, I'm here to proudly announce that the top on that tomato can is still on that tomato can. I work out. One to five times a week. I put muscle pressure on it. And it stay put. We put it under hot water pressure. And it stayed put. Standing firm is staying put in the midst of pressure. God says, when you find yourself in a setup, I want you to stay put in the midst of that pressure because you find yourself in one of these situations and what you see will pressure you to back out and go another way. Your self-talk will pressure you to go do something else. People talking to you will advise you to go do something else. And God says, I want you to stay put under that pressure. I don't want you to try to fix it. I don't want you to try to fly. I want you to stay put. Stay put in the prayer he's put you in. Stay put in the community he sent you to. Stay put in his word. Stay put in the work. Stay put in worship. Stay put in your faith in him. He says, stay put. Let me put a nuance on this. We need to stay put in community. Multiple reasons. One, we need other people to encourage us to stay put. Two, it could get real easy for me to think I'm staying put and where God placed me when really I'm just being stubborn about something I've made up my mind about. You need people around you where you can say, can you, can I run this by you and you tell me if you think this is something God's telling me to do or if I'm just being stubborn? You need people who will pray with you and say, God, is this what you told us to do? 
Because you need people to say, dude, you're just being stubborn. That's dumb. But we stay put in community so we can get clarity on what it is that God has for us to do. God says, stay put. The first one, stay put. And the second one is, see God, work it out. See God, work it out. Moses tells the people, don't be afraid. Stand firm. See the salvation that the Lord will work today for you. He'll fight for you so you go shut up somewhere. Right after that, it says, the God who led the people by way of a cloud and a pillar, he was before them, but this time he moved behind them and he, he, he protected their back. He pushed the Egyptians back a little bit. And then the God who in the first seven days of creation, he, he pushed the seas apart and said, this is your boundary line. That same God redid that work and he pulled the seas apart and made a tunnel for his people. One side was water. This side was water. This, this God escorted them through it. Once he got them on the other side of the shore, God turned around. He pulled the Egyptians in there. He placed them in the mud. He stuck them there. He pushed the waters back together and the people found themselves on the other side. Safe God worked out salvation for them. You read that text real close. The only action verb that's attributed to the Israelites is they walked through. Every other verb is attributed to God. God worked out salvation for them. What this does is it's given us a glimpse, though, of of God's true salvation. Let me nerd out with you real quick. Um, Moses says, stand firm and see the salvation of Yahweh. That word salvation, you're going to catch, some of y'all are going to catch this. I know you're real smart. Somebody online, you're going to catch it. That word salvation is the word Yeshua. He says, stand firm, see the Yeshua of Yahweh. 1,500 years later, the angel of the Lord popped up to a young woman named Mary and said, hey, you're going to have a baby by way of the Holy Spirit, and here's what I want you to name him, Yeshua, because the Lord will save his people. Jesus is the true salvation of God. Jesus is the great salvation that God has worked out. Let me paint a picture of you of this scenario. Just like the people in the wilderness, we all had somewhere we had to be. That's life with God. Just like the people in the wilderness, we had something separating us from what we had to be. That's this great relational chasm that our sin caused. Just like the people of Israel, we had enemies coming from behind us. The scripture says your enemies are sin, death. The devil, flesh, the world systems, uh, um, um, Satan, rulers, principalities, and they're all coming after us trying to get to us before we get to God. And it's in that situation that God became humanity, was born through the womb of a woman with no man's help, live a perfect life, climbed on his own cross, didn't get killed. He gave up his life. After he gave up his life, he picked his life back up. He put his Holy Spirit in us. He has brought us to God. He's made a way. He's split the sea. He's crushed his enemies. Jesus is our salvation. I love that song. Oh, the rugged cross, my my salvation. Talking about Jesus. What God worked out there gives us a glimpse of the true salvation, which is Jesus. But it also gives us a glimpse of God's character. God worked out your salvation. That lets me know that God is the kind of God who will work it out. 
my senior year of high school, um, my senior class, the PTO, PTA, somebody decided to send us to Puerto Rico for our senior trip. Um, I was like, cool. I'll go to Puerto Rico. The only problem is I didn't have money to go to Puerto Rico. I didn't have a job to make money to go to Puerto Rico. Worked at Marco's Pizza for nine days this summer before and got fired. <laughs> I only actually worked three of those days. No one in my family had money to send me to Puerto Rico. No one in my family had the kind of job to make the kind of money to send me to Puerto Rico. It's like, well, I guess I ain't going to Puerto Rico. I remember my grandmother saying one day, she said, I'll work something out. Three weeks later, my grandmother called me and said, hey, I'll work something out. Got your ticket bought. You're going on your senior trip. I never saw my grandmother working, but she worked it out. My grandmother never consulted me about what she was doing, but she worked it out. My grandmother never questioned or asked me how I thought she should do it, but she worked it out. I never heard my grandmother doing nothing, making calls, doing nothing, but she worked it out. I'm trying to paint a picture of you of how God works it out. You might never see him do it, but he's working. You might never feel him do it, but he's working. You might not know what's happening, but he's working. God is the kind of God who works it out. If he promised it, he's working out a way to fulfill it. If he said it, he's working out a way to see it. If he's leading you there, he's working out a way to get you there. God is the kind of God who works it out. And here's his direction to you. He's saying, I want you to stand firm. Some of you married couples, you're fighting for your marriage right now. And as you're fighting for your marriage, you're coming up against all kinds of spiritual attacks. God's saying, stand firm. Some of you right now are trying to fight some sin pattern and some addiction. And as you're fighting it, temptation rushes at your door harder than it did before. God says, I want you to stand firm. Uh, some of you are, are trying to go out there and be on mission. Some of you are trying to actually live faithfully with God and you're getting beat up in your workplace. God says, I want you to stand firm. Christ Church, as we go forward and as we come across problem after problem, God says, I want you to stand firm and watch me work it out. He says, I want you to stand firm and watch what I do. And when he does it, you know what we're going to do? We're going to get in a gathering just like this. And when they get up here and start playing, we're going to sing real loud. We're going to call each other and say, let me tell you what God did. We're going to post on Facebook, not about politics. We're going to post on Facebook and say, hey, let me me tell you all about what God worked out in my life. And he's going to get that glory. 